uh, to follow along in your bulletins this morning as a number of passages that we'll be looking at are also, I've tried to put them in various places in the bulletin. So this is now our third Sunday in a series that I've called Credo in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. Credo is the first word of the Apostles' Creed. I believe, and we've been considering that together, what does the Bible have to teach us about the coming of Christ into the world, and then what are we to believe as a result of that? And we've seen that that's for us in the Bible, and it's summarized helpfully for us in the creeds that we confess as a church. So if you've missed the last two weeks, the first one was Credo in Jesus Christ, that he is the eternal Son of God, that he was born 2,000 years ago of Mary, but that as the Son of God, he is the ever-begotten Son of God. He is from all eternity past. There was never a time when he was not. The second uh, thing that we looked at, Credo in Jesus Christ, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. And that's what we considered together last week, that Jesus came to save as a savior and that we as a people need that salvation by believing in him. So the idea here of this series is that believe is a popular word that is out in our uh, culture, in our malls, in our neighborhoods during this time of year. And it's an important biblical word but the idea of just believe in and of itself isn't enough. There's the question, there's the necessity of what do you believe in? Who's the person that you believe in? And that's what we are considering together. Uh, as a reminder, the end of the Gospel of John puts it this way. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There's content there. There's what you need to do. You need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, because by believing, then you receive life. There is life to be had in believing in the name of Jesus Christ. So this morning, hear the word of God as I read it for us this morning and believe the word of God, beginning at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Sorry, I lost my place there. I get so excited about it. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For, behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let me read the last verse again, because for this Sunday, that's key for us. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Great God in heaven. We thank you of these marvelous workings that you have done in this world, and we thank you that we can listen to them, hear them, consider them today, and see them fulfilled in the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Increase, then, our faith as we consider these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so then, today, credo in Jesus Christ, I believe in Jesus Christ, our focus today as promised, as promised. I believe in Jesus Christ as promised. The confession that we read earlier, the Belgic Confession, began this way. We confess that God fulfilled the promise which he had made to the early fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets when he sent his only and eternal son into the world at the time set by him. The Nicene Creed uh, says that in the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. And what I want to put together is the phrase, according to the scriptures, and this idea that he came as was promised. Because both of them contain for us the joy of a promise that has been given and a promise that has been fulfilled. And it applies, these, these promises apply not only to the resurrection of Christ, and the Nicene Creed is quoting 1 Corinthians 15 there when it says that he rose again in accordance with the scriptures, but they really apply to the entirety of the life of Christ, to his entrance into the world as the eternal son of God and to his coming into the world uh, to, for us and for our salvation and his resurrection as it was promised. So the promise was given, it was announced to humanity as soon as the need became apparent. As soon as Adam and Eve had entered into what we considered together last week, the estate of sin and misery, as soon as they began to experience what it was like, the darkness of the estate of sin and misery, as the joy of creation was being replaced by sorrow and by sadness, by shame, 
and by hiding and by guilt, by the crushing weight of all of these things, before, before the Lord announced the formal curses that would belong to Adam and Eve as a result of their disobedience, a promise was made. It's a very small promise. It's found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. If you look at page 7 of your bulletin, you'll see it printed there. But the promise was made that an offspring, a seed of the woman would come, and we can say it this way, to free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might. A seed of the woman would come to, as it says in Genesis 3.15, crush the head of Satan. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first promise that we have in Scripture given to mankind in the estate of sin and misery. It's the promise that God says, I have and am going to provide an answer to this problem. All, there are all kinds of promises that we find in the Word of God. But in one way or another, they all come out of this promise that is found right here, this promise of an offspring that will come from the woman. And if we turn then all the way to the New Testament, we would see Paul say that all of the promises of God, and there are many, they all find their yes in Jesus Christ who has come in the flesh. And so what I would like to do for us today is simply to trace the development of that promise and its fulfillment. Now, it is way too much to try and somehow consider all of the promises of God that are found in the Old Testament leading up to the New. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take four stops for us along the way in Scripture to consider the development of the promise. Stop number one is going to be with Adam, and then we're going to have stop number two be with Abraham, stop number three be with David, and stop number four be with the coming of Christ into this world. And the reason that I've chosen them is because of their prominence with respect to the promises of God. In one sense, you can see that because how often they are referenced in the New Testament uh, in the songs, both of Mary and of Zechariah, which we'll look at uh, a little bit later in, in our sermon today. It references Abraham and David in particular, uh, but also because when we look at the New Testament and we look at the fulfillment of these promises, in one sense, the New Testament begins with the fulfillment of exactly what we would expect in terms of Abraham and David. Our New Testaments begin in Matthew chapter 1 with these words. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And when Luke, in his gospel, does his genealogy, he continues with the son of, the son of, the son of, until he reaches down to the son of Adam, the son of of God. And so it makes sense for us then to consider the promise as it's unfolded in these three 
in, uh, particularly important places and people within the Old Testament. The idea here is simply this. It's simply this. If we take time to see these promises, to hear these promises, to recognize the fulfillment that God has brought in Jesus Christ to these promises, then that provides for us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. That's all I wanted to do for us today. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow as we see God fulfill his promises. So, okay, let's do this journey now. We've already made our first stop in this journey as we spoke of the promise that is found in Genesis 3.15. If it wouldn't be confusing with what we find in, uh, in the Gospels, I'd, I'd be tempted to call the promise that we have here in Genesis 3.15 the Annunciation. This is the enunciation of what God intends to do from this small beginning, from this small seed comes all of the other promises of God, all of the DNA of eternal life and of Jesus Christ are found in this simple phrase that we have here from the Lord of the promise to bring an offspring who will crush the head of Satan. I want to, uh, what I want to do now is just make a couple of observations that I think we can make based on that text in its setting about the promise itself. So, pre preliminary observation. Here's number one. First of all, this promise that God made to, he, he speaks it to the serpent in the hearing of Adam and Eve, but the promise is sovereignly decreed. There's no negotiation that takes place here. Note the words that are there in Genesis 3.15. God says, I will. This is what I am going to do. I'm going to bring forth this offspring, and he shall. Okay, two words about the sovereignty of God. I will, and he shall. Next observation. This promise that is given from the Lord is an unmerited promise. Uh, the actions of Adam and Eve, at this point, only merit curse and judgment and death. And yet, instead of that, this promise is given to them, and it is an unmerited promise, which is to say that even at this early stage, we can see that it's all by grace, that this is a gracious promise from God that is given to humanity. Next observation about this promise. It is personal. God doesn't promise a strategy. He doesn't provide them with some kind of a vision statement or a law or a principle. He doesn't say to them, okay, Adam and Eve, you messed up there with eating of the tree. Here's the next thing that you need to do. And if you do this next thing, then I will and he shall. Instead, that is now skipped. And God says, I will do this, and he shall do this. It's personal. And the promise then calls as well for a response. When you hear these words, and you're Adam and Eve, your ears perk up because you're not going to die at that moment. And so you begin a process of watching, of waiting, of trying to see when this offspring will come. And you're called to believe the promise of God. 
Adam's indication of his belief is that in hearing this, after this is done, he names his wife Eve because she will be the mother of the living. He has heard that an offspring is going to come forth from her. So those are just four preliminary observations. And I want to move now uh, on to uh, the next stop with Abraham and with Sarah and with Isaac. Now, we've already read that story, and that kind of covered the story of the coming of Isaac. But of course, Abraham is promise-laden. His life is full of promises. They're all over him as a man of God. In one sense, you can say that Abraham himself is the fulfillment of promise. He is one of the offspring of women that has come into the world. It, he's, he's this line that has continued. But of course, if we look at him, he's not only the fulfillment of promise, he is also the recipient of promises to an extraordinary extent. And, and when you look at his life and you compare the words that are spoken to him to Genesis 3.15, what you can see is that this promise of an offspring that was just a seed in Genesis chapter 3, now coming to Abraham, begins to grow and it begins to develop in some significant and beautiful ways. For most of these promises that God has given to Abraham, they're great, they are precious promises, they are extensive promises, but the reality is these promises that have been given to Abraham, that kings will come forth from you, that nations will come forth from you, that you'll inherit these nations, these promises and this land, these promises depend on an heir coming from him. And of course, an error coming from him and from Sarah begins to look more and more unlikely the older they get. Now, we couldn't read or couldn't consider all of the life of Abraham and Sarah, but if you know the story, you know them, that their lives waiting for this promise of an heir to be fulfilled are full of struggle, they're full of missteps, uh, incredulity even at what God has said, laughter, and human efforts to try and make a way that it just might be possible that these promises could be fulfilled. But undergirding all of those struggles that we have from him, there is faith in both Abraham and Sarah with respect to the promises of God. We saw in the passages that we read the incredulity. We saw the laughter that was there. But listen to the comments that we find in Scripture with respect to Abraham and then Sarah. Romans 4, it's on the front of your bulletin, by the way. Romans 4, verses 20 through 21. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, he grew strong in his belief as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And a very similar statement made of Sarah as well. Hebrews 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. 
Their faith is credited to them in both of these passages in the New Testament. And in fact, we saw this in Genesis chapter 15 as well. The faith that Abraham has is credited to him as righteousness. And God did what he promised. And when God did what he promised, and Sarah gave birth to a son at exactly the time that God had said she would give birth to the son, then a little bit of laughter came into the world. And Isaac became that which Abraham was. Isaac became, on the one hand, the fulfillment of the promise, right? He's, he's the one about whom the promises were made. He became the fulfillment of the promise and the recipient of the promises as well. So let me make some observations now on the promises as we see them developed in Abraham and Sarah. First of all, I'll combine all the ones that we had as observations before. This promise is sovereign, it is unmerited, and it is personal. God has here initiated the promise once again. And the promises are gracious. They are all of grace as they come to Abraham and Sarah. They are not based on the works that Abraham has done. They are not based on Abraham's observance of any law that God had given to him. In particular, as the scripture reflects on it, Abraham was not made a promise keeper by circumcision. It didn't depend on circumcision because the promise that was made came before the command to circumcise. Second observation. The promise to Abraham and Sarah is, of course, expanded. It's intensified. And it's ratified by something that becomes clearer with Abraham than it had been before, although you can see it just as much before. It's, it's ratified by means of covenant. Covenant and promise are inseparable ideas in Scripture. Uh, a covenant is really a solemnization of promises by oaths and vows. Now, here's an interesting thing. In Hebrew, there's not really a single word that means promise. In Greek, there's a word that means promise. In English, I'm saying the word promise right now. But in Hebrew, there really isn't. So where we read that God is making a promise in Hebrew, really what it says there is just God is saying. God is speaking these things. But when God says it, the point is this, that's as good as what we call a promise and what you can call in Greek a promise as well. But what a covenant does is it puts on top of that assurance. It's, it puts on top of it an oath. God doesn't need an oath for himself. God doesn't need to say, I promise to do this. No, I really promise to do this. But he does it for us. He does it for our benefit so that our faith may be stronger. We can be more sure. So uh, the New Testament then can speak of these words that are given to Abraham as promises and talk about the covenants of promise. And then here's the third observation. The third observation is this, that like the covenant and the promises made with Adam, the promise calls for a response, a response that is a matter of life or death. You have to respond to this 
covenant and this promise that God has made, and you respond to it by believing the promise. Listen to how Paul reflects on this in Romans 4. Paul says this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Not by something that Abraham did, but by believing, by his credo, by his taking the promises of God and saying, I believe the word that God has spoken. That was the righteousness that was given to him, not any work that he had done. Uh, verse 16 of Romans chapter 4, Paul says it this way, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Does that make sense? That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. If God had said, Abraham, if you do this, then I will keep the promise that I've made with you then we'd be lost, and Abraham would be lost because we exist in a state of sin and misery, and there's no ability for us to do this. Instead, instead, the promise that God made has to rest on grace. It has to rest on what God is doing unmerited from mankind, and the response to it is, of course, the response of faith. That's true for Abraham. And it's true for us as well. Romans 4 continues. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. By believing the promises of God, by believing that Christ has come to fulfill the promises of God, we then become the children of Abraham, like Isaac, the children of the promise. All right, let's do one more stop then with David and see how these promises are made to David. We'll be briefer here, though the reality is that they're, they're much more extensive with David than they were with Abraham. Listen to how these promises sound from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the Lord speaking through Nathan the prophet to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. It, just, just pause for a moment. Think of how much that sounds like the promise that was made in Genesis 3.15. It's exactly the same promise. That's thousands and thousands of years ago. The, the promises made to Abraham are 4,000 years ago, give or take. The promises here that are made to David are 3,000 years ago. Sorry, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have stopped it there. Uh, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the way it sounds in 2 Samuel. In Psalm 89, it sounds like this. This is saying back to the Lord. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. 
I have sworn to David, my servant, and here's the promise, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. To Mary, in what we read earlier, it sounded like this. The Lord God will give to him this offspring that is going to come from you. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign on that throne forever. And then the Apostle Paul preaches in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 23. I may have put that one in your bulletin as well. Listen to what it says here. And when he had removed him, that is when he removed Saul, when the Lord removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Of that man's offspring. You, you see the tracing of the line that goes... Genesis 3.15, through every one of those promises to come to that place of that man's offspring, here's the Savior, Jesus, who has been given to us. A couple of observations. The promise is, as always, covenantal, sovereignly given. It's unmerited. It's personal. It's full of love and care as it's given to David. In David, we see the promise is regal, and it is eternal. And we see that the promise is national. It's not just a single person or a single family. It's a nation. And at the same time, it's singular. It's focused on one who will be for all of that nation. So given all of that, given that development that exists within the Old Testament, and of course, we've only been selective in looking at it, it's not surprising for us that the New Testament begins with stories and language that is almost exactly the same as everything that we have just looked at throughout Scripture. We have two extraordinary annunciations, okay? Two extraordinary annunciations, one to Zechariah and one to Joseph slash Mary. Then we have two miraculous births, as we have seen before, two miraculous births, one of John the Baptist and then of Jesus. We have two songs, the Benedictus and the Magnificat, that celebrate, that celebrate the dawning of the age of fulfillment. The promised offspring has come, and they see it, and they sing about it. Mary sings this way. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And then Zechariah says it this way. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets of old. And then he continues, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we might be delivered. In fact, if you were to look, and we're not going to do it right now, but if you were to look at all of the early texts that you find about the birth of Christ, the early stories of his life in, for example, the book of Matthew, you would trace there that every one of them says this was to fulfill. This was to fulfill what was written. In other words, all of the birth, all of his life is in accordance with the scriptures and according to the promises that God made. Jesus, 
came into this world as was promised. God made the promise and God was able to do what he had promised. So that at the fullness of time, he, God, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. I'm quoting here from Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The purpose is revealed. The offspring promised becomes the offspring, the eternal son that comes into the world that there might be offspring, that there might be sons and daughters of the living God adopted into his family, an offspring to multiply offspring. And so as we come to the end, the question is this, do you believe it? Do you believe it, that Jesus came into the world as was promised? Do you believe the promises of God? Remember when Jesus asked this question, Mary and Martha, do you believe it? Do you believe when I make these statements to you? Do you believe these things? There are two responses in Luke to this. Zechariah had a response when the angel told him about the promises of God being fulfilled. And that was, I don't think so. And then he was rebuked for it, right? And behold, says the angel, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. In contrast to Zechariah is Mary's statement of faith. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Blessing is attached to belief. Belief is the way to that blessing that we receive from the Lord. And if you believe in the promises of God and in the promise of God coming in Jesus Christ, then it will be for you strength for today and it will be bright hope for tomorrow with the promise of his coming. The scriptures instruct us then with this. It's on the front of your bulletin as well from Hebrews. Let us hold fast then the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He promised to come, and he came. He has promised to come again, and he will come again. Do you believe this? Credo in Jesus Christ, as promised. Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe the promises that you have made. Voices in our world, sometimes voices in our own hearts, cause us to doubt. We hear, where's the promise of his coming? We pray that you would preserve our faith, strengthen it, grow it, extend it, so that when Jesus Christ comes, he will find faith on earth because you have preserved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.